Our sermon text today is from the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 26. And if you're able to do so, I'll ask that you stand for the reading of God's holy word this morning. Mark 14, verses 12 through 26, give ear to the reading of God's word. Mark writes, And on the, very, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, the one uh, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and said to him at one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating the eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's once again pray and ask God to uh, teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your scriptures uh, where we learn what we are to believe concerning you and and what your will is for us, how we are to live according to your will. And we pray that you would uh, once again work in us by your Holy Spirit. Give us uh, eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, this is not, uh, as I think I said earlier in the service, not your typical uh, Easter passage. Uh, I thought long and hard about jumping to the end of the Gospel of Mark. We're almost there. And I thought it would be kind of strange to go back and forth since we're so close to the end of the book. And really, you know, the last third, almost half of the book, in some way, shape, or form, deals with Christ's death and resurrection uh, over and over again. There isn't, there isn't a passage with, within these last three chapters that isn't in some way about his death and resurrection. In fact, if you were to read through the Gospel of Mark, as Rob said, you've got time this afternoon. Uh, maybe you don't, but maybe you won't read 1 Corinthians 15 like he suggested. But you could read through the Gospel of Mark relatively in, in short order. It's only 16 chapters long. And all throughout the book is sprinkled hints of what's to come. Uh, in fact, not just hints. If you read Mark 8, 9, and 10, three consecutive chapters, short chapters, and each one of those chapters, Jesus tells the twelve, Twelve tells his disciples in in no uncertain terms that he's going to be handed over and killed and rise again on the third day. He he tells it to them three three chapters in a row. So if you think about it, the the whole last half, 
a little bit more than that, chapters 8 through 16, is filled with references to Christ's betrayal, his being handed over, being killed, even being crucified, and being raised from, from the dead. And that certainly is uh, prominent in our in our text here this morning. On top of that, we're having the Lord's Supper, as it's the first Sunday of the month, in addition to being Easter. And this text actually deals with the institution of the Lord's Supper. So I thought it might be good for us to just stay the course, stay where we're at in Gospel of Mark in chapter 14. Uh, and we will see how this applies even to the resurrection of Christ. It may not seem obvious in the text, but when we get there, I think you'll see it if you haven't noticed it uh, already. Um, these chapters, especially chapter 14 and following, are filled with references to the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, if you're not familiar with your Old Testament, which many of us are not, that may not uh, you know, be obvious to you what those things are. Uh, we'll try to give some background on that. Last Last week... We looked at Mark 14, verses 1 through 11, and we saw that Mark there in verse 1 mentions that it was at that time, he says, two days before the Passover. Remember, the last the last uh, six chapters of Mark deal with basically one week, or eight days, uh, more or less, the Passion Week of Christ. And so two days before the Passover began in that Feast of Unleavened Bread, we're told there that the chief priests and the scribes, the religious professionals of Israel, uh, were again conspiring together to have Jesus arrested or seized and killed. Uh, it probably isn't a stranger sentence in some ways to read in all of Scripture than, than that uh, in verse 1. But they they weren't completely uh, senseless. They, they didn't want it to happen during this, during this feast. They wanted him dead, but they didn't want him dead when, you know, thousands of other Israelites, Jew, Jews, you know, flooded into the city and made the uh, the place uh, the population of Jerusalem uh, exponentially increased during these feasts because you had to celebrate it in Jerusalem. You couldn't have Passover at your house somewhere else in Galilee or even in Bethany. You had to go to the city. And why is that? There's only one temple at the time, one actual temple that God had authorized, and that was in Jerusalem. You can't do your sacrifices however you want, wherever you want, whenever you want. The Passover was at a particular time of year, in a particular place in their day. You know, it's hard for us to sympathize with that or identify with that. We meet wherever we meet in our day, but in that day it wasn't it wasn't the case. Well, they didn't want it to be during the Passover week because they feared a riot. Mark calls it an uproar from the people back in verse 2. And remember, some of those same people that were flooding into the city that, that would have seen this happen were also, you know, outside the city as Jesus made his triumphal entry, yelling, we, we saw last week, Palm Sunday, you know, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, you know, if you've grown up in the church, you know, you've kind of heard the Hosanna thing over and over again, and it, it's easy to lose sight of what that's about. That was a messianic message. That was them saying, this is him. This is the one we've been waiting for, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of year, this, years. This is the one prophesied by Moses way back in Deuteronomy 18. This is the one spoken of in the Davidic covenant where God promised King David that, that someone of his posterity, his, his seed, was going to sit on the throne how long? Forever. Not like Solomon for 40 years and then gone. Not like the other kings uh, that, that uh, ruled much uh, less, uh, the divided kingdom and whatnot. Um, so the, the chief priests and scribes, they, they wanted to avoid a riot. So they wanted to kill Jesus, but they wanted to do it after after the Passover, after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
We saw back in verses 3 through 9, an unnamed woman, what did she do? She gave this extravagant gift to Jesus. She broke this jar, this alabaster container, a very costly ointment or perfume, and poured it over his head. And and uh, elsewhere we're told that, that that jar, as strange as it may sound, was worth a year's wages. I think it was 300 denarii. Three, a, a year's wages for an average worker. This was an expensive gift. And people there were upset. We saw last week that Judas, Judas was very upset. And John tells us a little hint that Judas had a habit of, of uh, taking money out of the money bag. He was so trusted, he was in charge of the money. He was in charge uh, of the money. Well, this Jesus, Jesus commends her for it and says that what had she done? Again, it's a hint of what's to come. She had anointed him beforehand, anointed his body beforehand for what? For burial. And he commended her for that, that gift of faith and, and love. And then lastly, in verses 10 to 11, which we're going to see repeated in this text as well, Jesus tells them about his coming betrayal, or, or Mark tells us, rather, about Judas Iscariot. One of the twelve, he calls him, who was going to betray him, who made a deal with those same chief priests for a sum of money. We're not told in Mark what it was. We're told elsewhere it was 30 pieces of silver. Uh, and, you know, so Judas, one of the twelve, loved money more than he loved Christ. He loved money more than he loved God. And so this man who had accompanied Christ throughout his earthly ministry, he had seen firsthand the good deeds and even the miracles of Jesus Christ. He heard Christ's remarkable and authoritative teaching. He knew firsthand of Christ's sinless perfection, of his of his boundless love for all people and of the Lord. And he betrayed that Christ with a high hand, as well as with a kiss. Well, it's it's not an accident that the very next thing you see after that in the Gospel of Mark, uh, in our text today, uh, involves the celebration of the Passover. Mark is kind of giving us uh, time references throughout these these verses, and they're all regarding Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And I think if you understand what the Passover was about, it was about the gods redeeming his people from slavery in Egypt, the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. It becomes, I think, obvious why why this week, why these things had to happen in this particular week rather than at some other time. And so we see here the, the Passover being prepared for, pointing forward to Christ's own death as, as the real Passover lamb. We see the Lord sharing that same Passover meal with his disciples, even with uh, the twelve. And then lastly, we see his institution of the Lord's Supper. So we're going to look at three things. Our outline for this text is as follows. We're going to see first the preparations for the Passover in verses 12 through 16. The celebration of that Passover in verses 17 to 21. And then we're going to see the fulfillment of the Passover and the institution of the Lord's Supper in verses 22 through 26. So the first thing we see here in our text that we should notice is the preparations for the Passover. Verse 12, Mark says that it was now, quote, the first day of unleavened bread. And that's capitalized in most of your Bibles because it's referring to a particular time of year. It's like you would capitalize Christmas with a capital C. It's, it's that kind of a thing. It's a holiday, a week-long holiday. Uh, and he says, he notices, notice what else he says. It was the first day of unleavened bread when they did what? When they sacrificed or killed the Passover lamb. 
He doesn't, he doesn't add that for no reason. He wants us to keep in mind what time of year it is and why these things happen to Jesus now as opposed to some other time. And so the Lord Jesus sends his disciples into the city of Jerusalem uh, in order to make preparations for them to go eat the Passover with him. Verses 13 to 15, it says that Jesus gave them rather specific specific instructions. It says, and he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there, prepare for us. Now, verse 16, Mark says, uh, the disciples set out and went to the city and found it what? Just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. You know, his instructions kind of sound like one of these spy movies. Not a very interesting one, but, you know, you're going to go in, you're going to see this guy, and he's carrying a jar of water. And, you know, if you think about where the, you know, the way they traveled, and, you know, walking probably, uh, they were coming from Bethany. It's probably a couple miles away from Jerusalem. I don't know how long it takes you to walk two miles, but it might take me quite a while. And they were to go and, and, and find the place and all these things. And it, 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 in other words, it, they just so happened that when they got there, they were going to see a man carrying a jar of water. And they were supposed to follow him, you know, follow that car. They're supposed to follow the man with the water jar. And the man with the water jar would go to a house. It doesn't even say talk to him. It says follow him. Go into the house where he goes. He might have been a servant of that house. And then he says, go to the master of that house and just tell him, whatever house he goes into, just happens to go into, tell that master of that house, the teacher, you know, wants to know where his room is and what's going to happen. Oh, that's the most natural thing in the world. Sure. Okay, your room's right up here and you'll prepare for this big meal in someone else's house. But what happens? It happens just like Jesus says. You know, and we might be tempted to think, oh, Jesus, you know, he, he, uh, he made these arrangements in secret, you know, long beforehand. And, and he, this guy with the water jar had a time it just right. So he got there just when the, tw- when the two disciples got to town. Uh, how could Jesus have known these things? How could Jesus know that just when they got there, there would be this certain man carrying a jar of water and that the house that he took them to, or without even realizing it probably, uh, that the owner of that house would let them take up this upper, this large upper room. Um, it seems unlikely uh, that he would have made these arrangements in this kind of a fashion. Ahead of t- you know, if he had done that, he could have just said, you know, go to this particular house, ask for this guy, and he'll let you. And he doesn't do that. He's like, when you get there, this is what's going to happen. And you're going to see this guy carrying a jar of water, and you're going to follow him, and then you're going to ask this guy. I mean, you know, if you if it was us, you wouldn't want to go. If it was me, I, I would be the one to be like, you want me to do what? I'm supposed to go to some person I've never met and say, hey, nice house. Uh, we need this. Uh, where's the room that the teacher? Uh, and he says, my room. It, it, whose room is it? It's Jesus' room. Where's where's my room where I'm going to have the Passover? And the guy's going to say. Oh, oh, right this way and take them to it. It kind of brings to mind what happened back in Mark 11. Mark 11, you know, was the triumphal entry of, of Christ. And there it says that Jesus told the disciples to go into the city ahead of them where they would find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Mark 11, verse 2, they were to untie it and bring it. And if anyone were to question them about it, which seemed likely, what would it look like if they had gone to, to a house found some random colt on which no one had ever sat 
and just untied it and took it. It would be like you looking out in your driveway and seeing someone getting in your car. You know, where they get the keys, I don't know. Turning the keys and starting to drive away. You say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Yeah, click, click. You know, uh, uh, might, might want to think twice uh, about that. It would have looked like theft, right? And rightly so. Some, we would object. We'd say, wait, wait, wait. What does Jesus tell them to do? He says that if, if anyone were to question them about it, they were to just tell those people, the Lord has need of it. Mark eleven three, And what would happen? They would say, Go, go, go with God. Take, take the cult and, and go. And they would give it to him and allow them to take it to Christ. And that's exactly what happened. They went, they untold this, untied this cult that no one had ever sat on before. Uh, and the people let them take it when they told them the Lord had need of it. That's what's happening in our text. All through the text, Jesus is showing he's in control. He knows what's happening. He has a sovereign knowledge of all things that are going on. Um, and he is in control of, of all things. He he knows things that, humanly speaking, he should not have been able to foresee or know. Because they're not just dealing with some, some man. They're dealing with the God-man. They're dealing with the Messiah himself. And here, so what, what Jesus is showing us and showing the twelve, even showing Judas, as we're going to see, is that he's not, not some helpless victim of circumstance. Jesus is not some, you know, helpless, unwitting victim being pushed along by circumstance and enemies. He's not blindly, helplessly going to the cross. He's the master of his own fate. Jesus, and not his enemies, is the one that's completely in charge and in command and control of his circumstances, even of his death. Remember, the chief priest didn't want him to be seized and killed during the Passover week. Well, what's going to happen anyway? He's, Jesus is going to lay down his life when he chooses, when it was foretold for him to do. So let us uh, learn a lesson from that. There are many lessons in our text for us to, to take from these things. Let's keep in mind things like this whenever our Lord calls us to serve him in some way. You, you, you're never going to be called, I don't think, to walk into some random town and look for a guy with a water jar on his head, right? But when Jesus has you to do something for him, if he calls you to serve him in some way, he will provide for that work to be done. If God has called you to do some work in his name, he will provide for that work. Whatever is needed for that work to be done, he will provide for that work. And he also most often provides for that work through his people. When the master of the house, verse 14, hears that the teacher, not a teacher, the teacher requires his room, what does he do? He gladly gives it. Inexplicably in some ways, when God's people hear that the Lord asks for their time, their resources, their effort, their energy for the sake of his kingdom, we too must gladly give and serve for the glory of his name. All that we are and all that we have belong first and foremost to Christ and must be at his disposal. Our Lord Jesus sovereignly and providentially right now, seated at the right hand of God, he is ruling over governing all things. All things for the sake of his church. Paul says in Ephesians 1.22 that he is head over all things to or for the church. He's governing all things for our benefit, for his work to be done. And so I tell you this morning, if, when you step out in faith to do his will in some way, if he has called you to do something, uh, you too will find that all things are just as he told you. Just as he told you in his word. 
And so we serve him according to his will, which is expressed in his word. And when we step out in faith and do his will, we'll find all things to be laid out according, even, even as he told you in his holy word. Well, the second thing we see in our text is the celebration of the Passover. Uh, in the midst of this celebration, think about it. This is kind of like, I don't know, all I can think of is Christmas. This is not supposed to be a somber, mournful, this is a happy time. This is a celebration. They call it a feast for a reason. You know, this is something they probably looked forward to, had it on their calendar ahead of time all year. And in the previous verses we just looked at, the, the theme was prepare. Over and over again, preparation and preparing was found in the text. Well, here in verses 17 to 21, there's a dominant theme, and that theme is betrayal. The theme is betrayal. In verses 17 to 18, Mark says this, And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. So they came into the city. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, One after another, uh, is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes... As it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So here, once again, just like in the previous verses, we see Jesus knowing everything that's going to happen. He knows things he shouldn't have been able to know. He has got foreknowledge of what's going to happen. He's got, really, he's showing mastery of the events leading up even to his cross, not just the provision of that upper room, for the Last Supper or Passover, he's actually showing he knows not just that he's going to be betrayed, he knows who's going to betray him ahead of time. He displays his foreknowledge and mastery of those events even by predicting that in the midst of the twelve, he tells them that one of them was going to be the one that betrayed him. If you can imagine being in that room and hearing your Lord tell tell you among a group that one of you is going to be the one to betray him. Now, the NASB, I think, puts it better here when it says that, that what they said was, surely not I. That's really the force of the word. It's kind of a, it's one of those, uh, not hyper, a rhetorical question. It's, it's not so much, oh no, it's me, isn't it? It's, it's not me, right? That's really what they're asking. They, they can't imagine that any of the twelve, you know, notice that none of them say, it's Judas, isn't it? <laughs> Nobody says that. They say, it's not me, is it? That's really what they are, what they're saying. Now they probably had a very healthy self, you know, distrust of self. I think in some ways that's a good thing for us to have, to not, not assume that we are super Christians in any way, to know that we are still, you know, people with, uh, with, uh, feet of clay, so to speak. Um, but they couldn't imagine any of them except one, that they were capable of betraying Christ. Notice in the, in the verses that follow this, not in this text that we're looking at, when Jesus says, you're all going to abandon me, First he says, one of you is going to betray me. Then he says, you're all going to turn your backs on me. What do they all say? No way. Not me. Not me, Lord. What does Peter say? If everybody else you know, turns away, not me. Even if I have to die, I'm not going to turn my back on you or deny you. So they, they didn't think they were capable of something like that. But Judas did. What did Judas know when Jesus said these words? He knew that Jesus knew. He knew that Jesus knew it was him. And what did Jesus not do? He, now he kind of identifies him, the one who dips the hand, in, you know, dips with me in the bowl. He could have said this. This is what I would have said. It's him. 
It's Judas. Then what would have happened? You know, humanly speaking, yeah, they would have, well, they probably wouldn't have believed him at first, but they would have probably attacked him. You know, Peter had a sword we find out later on. Peter might have took care of business. Peter might have exercised his uh, Second Amendment rights to defend Jesus, you know. Uh, at the concealed carry a sword kind of kind of thing. Um, but he didn't do that. And why, you know, if Jesus had said that, that probably would have happened. And then no cross. I mean, God could have done it some other way, but Jesus, Jesus made sure that Judas knew and that the rest knew afterward that he knew ahead of time that was going to happen. Now, he knew that Judas knew that Jesus knew that it was him. Did that deter Judas from doing what he did? No. He still wasn't afraid enough to uh, stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed. In fact, according to Matthew 26, 5, Judas himself asked Jesus the very same question that the rest did. Is it I? If you can imagine that. He knows Jesus knows. And he asks him that anyway. Now, why? maybe that was to keep up appearances. He didn't want the other, the other 11 to figure out you know, hey, the rest of us ask this, but Judas is over there. Uh, he didn't move. He didn't say anything. We don't know what it was, but we know that Jesus knew who his betrayer was, and Judas, no doubt, knew as well. And he, he identifies him by saying that it was one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Now, that's a very specific way to identify his betrayer. It may sound like an odd way to, to identify him. Now, it brings to mind Psalm 41, 9. Psalm 41.9, David writes this, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. It's a, it's a description in the Old Testament of Judas, who was to come a thousand years later. Not only that, but as is often the case, the psalm in the Psalms, David, especially the Psalms of King David, his words, they, they have a tendency to point forward to someone greater than David. In fact, they, they point forward to the events uh, in the life of, of the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. Back in Acts chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, the apostle Peter states that in the Old Testament scriptures, he says, quote, The Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning not just Jesus, but Judas. Peter himself says the Psalms spoke about Judas, and this is what he, what he says. He quotes first Psalm 69.25 saying, May his camp become desolate and let there be none to dwell in it. And then Psalm 109.8, Let another take his office. They took that, that psalm, that verse from a psalm, as God directing them to appoint another to take his place, to take Judas's place. And they, they cast lots and the lot fell to Matthias to be the twelfth, uh, the twelfth apostle. So considering Psalm 41.9 and those two psalms, three times at least the psalms in, by King David spoke of Judas's betrayal. Again, a thousand years before it took place. Now, maybe you're sitting here thinking about that and you might think to yourself, well, hey, you know, if God's word foretold it, if it had to happen, doesn't that kind of excuse Judas for what he did? Somebody had to betray Jesus. Why not? Why not him? And why hold him guilty? Why hold him accountable for that sin? But what does Jesus say in verse 21? He says, for the son of man goes or, or must go as it is written of, of him. In other words, the scriptures say this has to happen. God's word cannot fail. Not one word of God can fall to the ground. But he says this, but woe to that man by whom the son of man 
is betrayed, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. The word woe is kind of the Old Testament prophetic way of pronouncing doom on someone. You know, we kind of say, woe is me. Well, no, woe was God's sentence of judgment coming down. For a prophet or, or, or a man of God to pronounce a woe on a person or on a land or on a people was a promise of destruction. It was a terrible thing to hear. And Jesus says, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Jesus here tells us that even though his betrayal was a part of the foreordained plan and purpose of God for the salvation of his people, that by no means excused the wicked actions of Judas or anyone else in betraying or crucifying the Lord of glory. God's sovereignty does not excuse the sins of man, nor does it make the sinner any less responsible and accountable for his sins. It's like what Paul says in the book of Romans in chapter 9. We don't get to say when we sin, you know, well, well, who? why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? How many people do you know, maybe you've said words like this before. People often say this when they want to cast the guilt of their own wickedness on God. They say, well, that's just the way God wired me. That, you know, this is the way God made me. So he must have, he knew this ahead of time. He knew I was going to do this. He didn't stop me. He let me walk into the situation where I uh, fell into this sin. And so it's God's fault. It's not mine. We don't say the words, but that's what those words mean. That's just the way I'm wired is a fancy way of saying, not my fault. It's God's fault. Well, that, that will not pass on the day of judgment. God's sovereignty over all things is no excuse for our sins. And in Judas's case, the reality of eternal punishment in hell is what Jesus talks about here. When he says it would have been better for him not to be born. Think about that. For a lot of people, that's a scary enough thought. Many people that you know, maybe some in this room, you think that when you die, the light switch just goes off and you cease to exist. Jesus says of Judas, it would be better for that to be the case than for what's going to happen. That's a frightening thought. That's the reality of hell. Many people, I've read this past week that apparently uh, the Pope, the current Pope, has decided that uh, he's being kind of, uh, they're they're kind of spinning this back a little bit, but apparently the Pope has come out and said there's no hell. That when you die, that's it. Apparently the uh, the Pope... Is the lots, of, lots of things are changing in the Roman Catholic uh, doctrine these days, but uh, not even the Pope gets to get rid of hell. Jesus certainly doesn't do that himself here. Jesus says that the, the wicked will not just cease to exist after death, that, but they wish that they, they they would wish that they would. He says that that would be much to be preferred to what actually awaits the wicked and the unrepentant on the day of judgment. Well, not just hell, but this text, I think, is a warning against hypocrisy as well. Uh, Let the example of Judas be a sober warning against hypocrisy and false faith. J.C. Ryle writes this, If ever there was a man who at one time looked like a true disciple of Christ and bade fair to reach heaven, that man was Judas. Again, he was in charge of the money bags. You don't usually put someone as treasurer who you don't trust. You don't usually hire a convicted bank robber or felon to be the guard at the bank. Well, he was the one in charge of the, of the purse, of the money bag. And certainly even to the other, to the other 11, remember, none of them, according to Scripture, said, oh, it, it must be Judas. We, know. we always had a thing about him. We always thought something was wrong with him. The other disciples did not suspect him. He followed Christ along with the other disciples for a time, for probably three years, 
and yet he had neither saving faith in Christ nor love for him. His heart was still unchanged, and he was yet a stranger to the grace of God. And so this morning there, there's a, a kind of a warning in our text, I think. Don't content yourself with the mere outward practice or profession of religion. Regular church attendance, church membership, baptism, all those things are good things. Uh, none of them mean a thing without conversion and true faith in Christ. You have to be in Christ. As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13.5, he says, Examine yourselves to see what? To see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Paul himself tells us that. Examine yourselves. Examine yourself. See if, see if you are in the faith. He doesn't say examine one another. It's not our, that's the first thing that I think of. Maybe it's the first thing you think of when you hear a text like this. You say, oh, I know somebody who needs to hear this. No, we need to hear this. And we need to think, of it. Paul says basically look in the mirror, not look at somebody else. Look at yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Is Jesus Christ in you? Are you in Christ by faith? It's only in Christ that forgiveness of sins, peace with God, and the sure hope of eternal life are to be found. Well, the last thing we see in our text in verses 22 to 26 is the institution, the beginning of the Lord's Supper. And again, the fact that this all takes place during the Passover week is not an accident, it's not a coincidence, and that both of these things just happen to happen when Jesus is about to be betrayed and go to the cross is also no no accident. The Passover, what does the Passover do? What what was the purpose of the Passover? Were, peop, were people's sins forgiven because they killed a lamb and ate it and offered it up as a sacrifice? Did, did a lamb's blood actually cover their sins? No, the purpose of the Passover lamb was to point forward to the Lamb of God. Remember John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming up, what did he say? Behold, that would be a weird thing to call someone. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He doesn't just say, behold the Messiah who takes away the sins of the world. He calls him the Lamb of God. What does that imply? He's going to be the sacrifice. He's going to lay down his life for the sins of his people. That's what the Passover pointed forward to. It pointed forward to the atoning death of Christ in the place of sinner. Well, the Lord's Supper that we're going to take this morning is similar, but it doesn't point forward. It points what? It points back because he has come and died and rose again. It points back to the cross. And so the Lord's Supper essentially corresponds to and, and supersedes, takes the place of the Passover. William Hendrickson, a great New Testament commentator, puts it well. He puts it this way, kind of a play on words on his part. He says, at this point, Passover passes over into the Lord's Supper. For it was while toward the close of the Passover meal that Jesus instituted the new sacrament that was to replace the old. A few more hours, the cross was that soon, a few more hours in the old symbol being bloody for it required the slaying of a lamb will have served its purpose forever. Having reached its fulfillment in the blood shed on Calvary, it was time, therefore, that a new and unbloody symbol, the, the cup, replace the old, nevertheless, by historically linking the Passover and the Lord's Supper so closely together, Jesus also made clear that what was essential in the first was not lost in the second. Both 
that's the Passover and the Lord's Supper, both point to him the only and all-sufficient sacrifice for the sins of his people. Passover pointed forward to this. The Lord's Supper points back to it. No longer would the sacrament uh, involving communion involve the shedding of the blood of lambs. No shedding of blood after the, the Lamb of God shed his blood to make propitiation and give his life as a ransom for many. Now, remember at the Passover, what did the people have to do? They had to go in, the, in, the, in the, the house, sacrifice the lamb, kill the lamb, offer it as a sacrifice, and then what else did they have to do? They had to eat it. They had to stay in the house they were at, and they had to eat that lamb. Now, what is that a picture of? When you eat, it gives you life. It, it, it helps you to give, gives you strength and life. And, and in the same way as, as they, during the Passover, got that from eating the sacrificial lamb, uh, they were identified with that sacrifice by doing that. They, in a sense, participated in that sacrifice, shared in it by eating it. Even so, Christ's people today, when we eat the bread and drink the cup, we, we eat the bread as if it was his body broken for us. We drink the cup, which is his blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. We do the same thing, in a sense, with the New Testament sacrament of the Lord's Supper that they did with the Old Testament sacrament of the Passover. Although we don't kill a lamb. Why? Because he's already been, he already laid down his life once for all, never to be repeated in, in any way. But the, but the feast of the sacrifice goes on at the table of the Lord's Supper. These things, the bread and the cup, they are signs and seals of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, his body broken, his blood shed to pay for our sins. That's what we celebrate every year at Good Friday. We think of, we just had the, the service down at New Life this past Friday, the Good Friday is the death of Christ. Why do we call it Good Friday? Humanly speaking, was it good? If you had been there, people were cut to the heart when they saw it. They beat their breasts. It was a horrifying thing to see. But because of what it affected, it's Good Friday with a capital G. Because our sins have been paid for when Christ died on the cross and said, it is finished. And more than that, it's Good Friday because he's not still in the grave. He rose again on the third day after after the cross. And so every every Lord's Day, not just every Good Friday, not just every Easter, we are to, as Paul says, preach Christ what? Crucified. Not just teach Jesus' teachings, which we do. We preach Christ crucified. That's at the heart of the Christian message from week to week. That's what we proclaim every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Now, there's, there's a reason, there's a good reason, there's many good reasons that we celebrate this on a regular basis. That this isn't a once a year thing. We, we can do it every week, as far as I'm concerned, but we do it once a month. We do it on a regular basis. Why? Because it's easy to lose sight of it. It's easy to think about and talk about and preach about all these other things found in the scripture, but forget the central, the central thing of first importance in scripture that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Uh, now in verse 25 of our text this morning, Jesus says something else that not only points to the perpetuity, uh, uh, perpetuity, rather, of our observance of the Lord's Supper, but also points forward to his resurrection. It might not jump off the page at you, but that's, that's what we celebrate every Easter and every Lord's Day. Look at verse 25. He says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. What's he, what's he presupposing there? What's he saying is, is going to happen without spelling it out uh, for us in the text. For Jesus, the Lord, to drink of that fruit of the vine anew 
in the kingdom of God means he must rise again from the grave. If Jesus was going to die and stay dead, this verse makes no sense. Jesus would have said, this is the last supper and it's really the last, last supper and it's been nice knowing you. He says, no, I'm going to drink of this again one day uh, in, the, in the kingdom of God. Now, the, the text here says to us that in saying that, the best laid plans of Christ's enemies, uh, the chief priests, Judas, even the evil one himself, they're helpless to prevent the coming of Christ's kingdom, the coming of Christ's kingdom with power. In fact, they tried in vain to prevent it. Isn't that why they killed him in the first place? We will not have this man to rule over us is really what they're saying. And yet what happens? Their killing him results in him what? Paying for the sins of his people, rising from the grave on the third day, and now where is he? We just confessed it this morning in the Nicene Creed. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and he shall come again with what? Not in humility next time, with glory to judge the quick or the living and the dead. They tried to prevent his kingdom from coming to pass, and yet they ended up making it happen. It's just like the story of Joseph. Remember Joseph, the coat of many colors, or the technicolor, whatever the coat was in the, the Broadway play, right? What, what happens? He has these visions. He tells them, his brothers and his family about it, and they go, no, 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 no. We're going to stop this. This guy's out of his mind. They were going to kill him. They said, you know, let's not kill him. Let's sell him into slavery and tell, tell dad he got killed by a you know, wild animal and we'll be done with it. We'll never see him again. Well, what happens? Them doing that causes him, causes his dream to come true. And they bowed the knee to him and depended upon him for their salvation. Well, in an even greater way, that's what happens to Jesus here. Jesus, their, their attempts to do all these things to stop his kingdom made it come to pass. First uh, Corinthians fifteen three through 4 Rob read this earlier in the service. Listen to Paul's words. He says, For I delivered to you as of what? First importance what I also received, that Christ, what? Died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Notice, he doesn't just say Christ died. That's a true statement, right? He said Christ died for what? Our sin, for our sins. And, and what does he say about that? It was in accordance with the Scriptures. It had to be fulfilled. It was prophesied and foretold the gospel beforehand. He was buried in a tomb. He was raised on the third day. Also what? Just as the Scriptures said he would. We've read Psalm 16 this morning, other places as well, that spoke of the resurrection of Christ. And now he's ascended and seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, where he lives and reigns over all things for the sake of his church. And so because of that, because of Christ's death for our sins, because of his resurrection on the third day, because of his ascension and reigning at the right hand of God, uh, now we make disciples of all the nations. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. And Christ disciples the members and citizens of his church and kingdom. We now are to gather in his name for worship on a regular basis, hear his word proclaimed, and celebrate that as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, that Christ, our Passover lamb, has what? Has been sacrificed. Paul says this is that. We, we still have a Passover to worship, but our Passover lamb has already been sacrificed, and now he has risen from the dead, never again to suffer and to come again one day in glory. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, the passage about the Lord's Supper, that we do this, we have this table until he comes again, until our, our risen, ascended, and reigning Savior 
returns in glory. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do what? You proclaim his death. And then he adds, until he comes. He's not still in the grave. He has risen and ascended and is coming again one day in glory. Amen. Let's let's pray. Lord, we give you praise for your word, that your word in all these different ways throughout always speaks of Christ, that your the cross of, of Christ, your son, was foretold throughout the Old Testament scriptures and fulfilled to the letter that we find it. Just as you said it would happen, it comes to pass, not just with the upper room and with that uh, cult of a donkey, but also, more importantly, with, with the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world that you you planned in your your plan before the foundation of the world to send him to be the savior of sinners that you foretold his death in great detail even his betrayal by Judas a thousand years before it came to pass and you also sent him to die for our sins according to your scriptures to rise from the grave as well according to those same scriptures and we thank you for your word we thank you that not one word from your word falls to the ground but everything comes to pass that Heaven and earth will pass away, but the words of our Savior will never pass away. And Lord, we pray even today that you would help us to make us grow in our faith. And if anybody here this morning does not yet know you, has not yet turned to you by faith in your Son, that you might turn them even today, work in them by your Spirit, draw them to yourself through faith in Christ, that they might know the great joy of forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life that we celebrate at Easter and every Sunday. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen.